We are continuing through the book of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 6 today. We've been preaching through the book of Matthew under the conviction that uh, me just deciding what I want to preach on is probably not going to be the best for the church. Let's let God set that agenda. But we will be pausing next week for a Christmas message. So uh, um, if you are uh, thinking of inviting somebody to church next Sunday because of a Christmas theme, there will be a Christmas message next week. I think it's important, too, just as that the day of Christmas approaches that we do stop, even as a church together, and think about the significance of Christmas, which ironically we'll find Mark's gospel helps us do that. So, uh, but today we move through the book of Matthew. Um, we're in chapter 6, verses 1 through 24. If you're using the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you, um, that's on page 811, so you can turn there. In just a moment, I'm going to read through the whole passage, and it's a longer passage, but I want to say, um, as, I, uh, as I preach through this, um, you'll be hearing my words, which I'll be doing the best I can to faithfully recount what's in here, but when I read through it, you'll be hearing Jesus' words, the inspired words of God, and so it's important that you hear and pay attention even more so to what we're about to do. So because it is God's word, even though it's a longer passage, let's stand for the reading of it. Matthew 6, 1 through 24. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is this darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Please be seated as we pray. Father, this, this rich passage that you have before us is so important for us to hear. We want to hear it exactly as Jesus wanted us to hear it. It's only will happen if your spirit is working in our hearts. Natural man can't understand these things. So, Father, we open ourselves to the movement of your spirit to work in and through the proclamation of your word in our hearts. Help me, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Our passage starts, beware. It's an interesting little word. So if you're thinking of going and becoming an athlete, beware, lest you become the proverbial dumb jock. If you're thinking of going into law, beware, lest the desire for money cloud the priority of justice. If you're thinking of getting your PhD, beware lest you think that you're smarter than the rest of us or than everyone else. And if you're choosing to follow Christ, beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them. That's really the crux of what Jesus is saying in this whole 24 verses. If you're going to be my follower, if you're thinking of following Christ, there's something we must beware of. We must beware of doing our righteous deeds for people to see them, to receive the praise and the accolades of man. There's a very obvious structure to Jesus, this portion of Jesus' sermon. Verse 1 states his main point. We've already kind of touched on that. Then he gives three examples of his main point. So he talks about giving to the needy, he talks about praying, and he talks about fasting. And then in verses uh, 19 to 24, he comes back around and hammers home his main point. It's a nicely structured little sermon that Jesus has for us here. So let's look at verse 1 in a little bit more depth. It's a, it's a diagnostic verse. I remember uh, a, a couple years ago, one of my kids had a rash. And I do what doctors love. when Doctors love it when you do this. I went on the internet to try and figure out what was going on. And uh, I found out that there's, there's two different kinds of rashes and uh, t- two main categories. 
different nature to the rash, so to speak. And the way you figure it out is by taking a glass and you press it against the rash. And if the rash disappears when you press it against it, then it falls into one category. And if you can still see it, I see Dr. Kunica looking at me. I'm going to hide. <laughs> if you can still see it, it's a different kind of rash. Well, whether my, uh, my internet research was accurate or not, it was this diagnostic tool to figure out exactly what's going on with this rash, what the nature of that rash is, right? And that's what verse 1 is doing for us. It's a diagnostic verse that says, here is a test that you can apply to yourself to see what is really going on, what the real nature of your faith is. And the question is, when I do righteous things, am I doing it for man, to please man, to try and attract the fickle praise of people, or am I doing it ultimately for God? That's the real issue going on in this passage. Two different motives for the same deed. And what the passage teaches us is that these two different motives actually receive two different rewards. Two motives, two rewards. So if my motive is to be seen by man, to do it for others. The Bible says all the reward we will get is the praise of man. But if we do it with a motive, with a heart to play, please our Father, the reward we will get is an eternal and lasting reward from the Father. That's what verse 1 tells us. Beware practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now before we move on past verse 1, there's, there's two important truths that are revealed in this, past, in this verse that I want to draw out that just kind of help frame how we think about, it's important for how we think about the rest of the passage. One of them is that it's important for us to see that seeking a reward is not evil. I think a lot of times we think that, that the Christian way of thinking is like, okay, so if I'm doing something so as to get a reward, that's bad. And to do something with no thought of reward is good. That's kind of our thinking. But that's not Jesus thinking here. That's not what he's teaching. He's actually saying there's... There's two different kinds of rewards that you can pursue. There's an earthly fleeting reward. And there's an eternal lasting reward. Jesus says our heart issue is not that we desire reward. It's that we desire the wrong reward. The problem in our hearts is desiring reward from man, praise from man... But the cure is not to get rid of the desire for reward. The cure is to replace that with the desire for heavenly reward. So it is right for us as Christians to say, there is a prize set before us. Let's run so as to receive that prize. The other thing that I think is important to see is this emphasis on God as Father. 
You see that there will no reward from your father who is in heaven. And you might have noticed that father, father, father language as I read through the passage. This language actually kind of was picked up even at the end of chapter 5. Jesus started to introduce this concept of father. And understanding ourselves as children of our heavenly father is central to right thinking throughout this whole passage. We have to see ourselves as children of our heavenly father. Now, that we talk about father all the time, God as father all the time in our Christianized culture. Or in our Christian, I mean, I understand the day is, the day is becoming less Christianized, but nonetheless, Christian language is still common. We think of God as father. But in those days, to talk about God as father would have been a jarring thought. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been normal, especially as my father, this kind of personal side of it. So I want us to hear that afresh. Just like the disciples would have been a little jarred by what Jesus is saying, your father, your father, your father, and talking about almighty God. I think we need to hear it that way. Because there's a relational undertone here that, that upholds all of what Jesus is saying. Some girls who grow up in a home where uh, there's not a strong father figure there, they don't have a good relationship with their father. When they hit adolescence, they start looking for that security and that stability that should have been provided by their father in all sorts of unhealthy relationships. And I think some Christians who do not really understand who our father is and the relationship we have with him through Christ as his children, his beloved child, if we don't really grasp that, then we go out and try and, through all sorts of unhealthy means, get the approval and security and praise of man in that same sort of destructive way. So all of what's being said in 1 through 24 hinges on rightly understanding our relationship as a child of God with our Heavenly Father, and the warmth, and the love, and the intimacy, and the security that that brings. So, that's verse 1. What follows in 2 through 4, and then 5 through 15, and then 16 through 18, are three different examples of this principle of two motives, two rewards. The diagnostic question, what's really going on in your heart? What, are, what is motivating you? Jesus is just masterful in how he teaches, right? He, he has stated his point, and now he's giving these examples. But, but the three examples he chooses aren't just randomly chosen. It's like, these are the three things I need to highlight. They were actually, uh, they were kind of the, the cardinal virtues for a Jewish mind. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. We Americans like to talk about life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Those, the trifecta there. Well, a Jewish mind, in terms of righteous deeds, would have had that same ringing phrase, you know, almsgiving, prayer, fasting. So Jesus isn't choosing these as like the only three areas where this matters. It's not like, hey, you can be a people pleaser any area you want, just not in these three categories. He's choosing these as kind of three main ones that typify all righteous deeds. And they all follow a, a similar pattern or formula. So if you look, each one starts by stating its topic. So in verse 2, we see, thus when you give to the needy. Verse 5, and when you pray. 
And then verse 16, and when you fast. And then after stating it, he says, don't do this topic like the hypocrites. So there you have uh, in verse 2, don't do it as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and streets. And then in verse 5, um, uh, the beginning of verse 5, or right after I said, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And again in verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. The formula. And then it says, what are you doing in being like the hypocrites? And, and there's, that same, there's another formula, or uh, the, the formula continues. Now it says, that they may be praised, that they may be seen, that they may be praised. He goes on, and every single one of them to say, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So you see it in verse 2. And then you see it in verse, sorry, I skipped it, uh, in verse 5, at the end of verse 5. And then you see it at the end of verse 16. And then he gives the alternative. But, but, but. And in each of the three examples, he says, but do it in secret. That word secret is used all three times. And then it ends every time with, if you do it in secret, what will happen? Look at the end of verse 4. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Look at the end of verse 6. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Look at the end of verse 18. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. It's really just kind of, you know, if you ever play Mad Libs, it's all the same. You just change a few of the words. That's what's going on here. Where he's saying the exact same thing but using different examples. And it's all coming back to his main point. Look, there's two different motives you can do something with. You can do it to be seen or do it in a way that you'll be seen so that you receive praise from man. Or you can do it in a way that's secret. That's knowing God sees in secret, so it's doing it for the Lord. And you receive reward from man. Two different motives, two different rewards. It's consistent throughout. So let's look at the first example he gives. And we're going to move fairly quickly through each of the examples. Um, but let's look at the first example, which is giving to the needy. Uh, Jesus talks about how, how the hypocrites would, would give to the needy. He, he likens what they do to, to sounding a trumpet before they would give their money to the poor. They're, they're doing this, they're giving to the poor because of what it does for them, that they'll be thought great men. Now, now, we have businesses that do this all the time, right? Businesses will give to a certain charity, and they want to make a big deal of it. So they, they let you know, we're giving to this charity because it's good for business for you to know that they give to charity, right? Wealthy people do this also. So there's a, a celebrity American football player, though he's not playing right now, named Tim Tebow, who... Um, he does a lot of really good things with his money. And one of the things he recently did through his foundation is build a hospital in the, Philippine, in, the, in the Philippines. But if you look at the picture of it, this huge word at the top of the hospital says, Tebow. In other words, look at who's done this. Trumpeting it. I had a, a man... Um, that uh, 
that I knew who had made a lot of money in the oil industry. He'd made a fortune. I've never known someone who had so, so much money. And he wasn't the most generous man in our church. But when there was a charitable dinner, or when giving would buy you a seat at the table for a position of influence or an opportunity to talk to an important person, he was always there with his wallet open. Jesus has a word for people like this. He calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites. It's a word we see repeatedly in this passage. Now I know it's actually, we're just taking that word from the Greek. It's a real theological word, hypocrites. One of those big, long, people don't like theological words today. But some, for some reason, they like this one. Everybody knows the word hypocrite, right? But here's the way we tend to use the word hypocrite, at least the way I've heard it used, in broader society. Here's how it gets used. Somebody comes along and they say something, they suggest or imply that something I'm doing is not godly, is wrong, is sinful, or something like that. Now, I look at their life, and I take a a microscope to their life and look for any place in their life where they're not living up to the standards that they set. And if they're not living up to the standards that they're set, I call them a hypocrite. I don't need to listen to that hypocrite. That's how we use the word hypocrite today. At least that's been my experience. But interestingly, that's not how Jesus uses the word hypocrite here. That's not how the Bible uses the word hypocrite. The word itself originally had its roots in the theater, in Greek plays. It was a, it was a, a certain role that, that an actor would have. So the word has, has in its connotation this idea of performing for man so as to please man, to get their applause. And... Uh, it, if you if you do into if you dig into it, it's it's really there's an element of, of doing things for show. So uh, Lady Gaga has the song "I Live for the Applause." That's really what a hypocrite is: living for the applause. It's it's especially when you're it's your religious deeds that you're using to try and gain the applause. It's it's a matter of trying to portray oneself in the best possible light. An idea of of an outward form of righteousness, an outward show, but with no connection to true heart change. That's what a hypocrite is, biblically. Look, nobody lives up to the standard that they have. (laughs) Set aside Christians and their, their standard being the Bible. You talk to anybody, and this is the kind of person I think is is a good, righteous person or a a good person. Do you always measure up to that? None of us measure up to the standards that we have. It's not called being a hypocrite. That's called being a human. Being a hypocrite is where I'm trying to garner the praise of man or where I'm trying to put on a certain exterior that shows that I'm righteous when there's something different going on in my heart. So the preacher who nuances his message just so to avoid perhaps certain offensive things and to allow the crowd to be a little bigger 
Well, that's a hypocrite. The politician who attends church because it will buy him a few extra votes. Well, that's a hypocrite. And the person who gives money to the needy but does it in a way so that others will think he's great. That is a hypocrite, according to Jesus. Now we need, we need to be helping the poor. That's the assumption underlying this. We need to be giving generously to the needs of the poor, and we should feel the weight of that if we're not. This isn't a sermon on how to best do that, but it is something we're all to do. But we're to do it subtly, as subtly as we possibly can, in a way that attracts the least amount of tension as we can. Because when we do it that way, there is an eternal reward that awaits us. But if we do it to try and please man, that's all the reward we'll get. The second example that Jesus gives is prayer. And this one spans verses 5 all the way through 15. It's his longest section. And uh, we're actually going to come back in a few weeks in the new year. We have a week of prayer, January 4th to 11th. And we're going to look specifically at verses 9 through 13 in that week, the Lord's Prayer. Um, So I'm not going to cover that today, but I am going to cover the rest of verses 5 through 15. And and there's there's two parts to it. So verses 5 and 6 are really where he deals with that formula that I was talking about. But then in verses 7 through 15, Jesus gives extended teaching on prayer. So you kind of have to look at it, even though he's given the example of prayer, there's one that's kind of the classic example that fits with what he's talking about. And then he wants to say a little bit more about prayer, and we'll look at that too. So in verses 5 and 6, he is talking about those who love to pray in public, whether it's at the synagogue or street corners, in order to be seen by others. He says, Don't, that's not the way I want my followers to be. I want them to have a different motive, a motive that says, this isn't to please man, it's for God. Now, Jesus is not against public prayer. The Bible is not against public prayer. There are dozens of public prayers recorded in the scriptures that are held up in a positive light. Jesus himself, when his disciples were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane, goes to a group of them together. He doesn't say, go into a closet somewhere and hide and pray. He says, watch and pray right here. He's telling them to pray in public. And the church in Acts gathers together for prayer, and it's commended in the book of Acts. So public prayer is not the issue here. Jesus is using this just like he used the trumpet as kind of a jarring way to get our attention and say, be careful of what you're doing. He's using this to have us really, again, apply that diagnostic test to our hearts. So it's okay to come to the public prayer meeting tonight. But, as we do, there may be a few questions we need to ask about our own hearts. Do I delight to pray in public, but struggle to pray in private. 
when I pray in public, public, is that just an overflow of the health of my private prayer life? Through, pub- public, through public prayer, do I like to leave people with the impression that prayer, my prayer life is actually better than it is? If we answer yes to those questions, we might be praying to please man. How about this? When you use a phrase like, I'll pray for you, or you're in my prayers, why are you saying that? Are you saying it because you have this burden to pray for them and you're committed to following through on that and you want to offer them that encouragement? Or are you saying that because you want to be seen as the good friend that's virtuous and does the right thing? Because Christians are supposed to pray for their friends who are in need. What's going on in our hearts? So Jesus does do this extended teaching then in verses 7 through 15. It doesn't exactly fit the formula, but it... It's similar to what he's been saying in, other, in, in, in the, the wider passage in that it's dealing with heart issues and it's saying there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And it all comes down to your heart and your relationship with the Father. So he says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles, that is like pagans, like people who think of God in the wrong way, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. There's this wrong notion, this pagan notion that that I think has crept into Christianity that says, I can get God, obligate God, to do what I want. So maybe, or or at least I can increase the likelihood that he'll do what I want. And so um, it's good to pray, but if you really want God to do what you want, then you need to pray for a really long period of time. If, if, you, if you really, really want to ob- obligate God, you might add some other things to it. But this idea of heaping up words so that God will be impressed by the, the quantity of our words and will do what we want as a result is actually pagan at its core. It thinks that we need to pull the strings on God to get him to be obliged to do something for us. I remember when I was in university, I hosted an all-night prayer meeting. And it, I would do it again. It was a wonderful time. But, but there was some thinking in my mind, I think, that I thought, well, if we do this, God will somehow be more likely to do what we want him to do. And God says, that's just not the case. He knows what we need already before we ask. In fact, then he gives an example of prayer. And interestingly, it's a short prayer. I don't think that's the main point of it, but it is a short prayer. You state your need, you do it humbly, and you trust God. Again, it comes back to that relationship. He's my father. He's eager to give good things to his children when they ask. I don't have to somehow, your kids do this to you sometimes, right? They, they try and pull all the strings and work it just the right way to get you to give the response. You feel it. You feel the manipulation, and it's like, no, just come to me and ask. State your need humbly and ask. I love to give you good things. It might not be the right thing for you that time. I'm not going to give it. No matter how much manipulation, I'm not going to do it. 
But I love to give good things. That's what our relationship with our Father is like. Then there's verses 14 and 15. When I was reading it, probably many of you thought, that's in the Bible? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That should cause us to sit up and take notice. Again comes to our heart. If we are praying to God, with an unforgiving heart. Broadly speaking, our prayers are hindered. Narrowly speaking, what Jesus is saying here is we should question whether we actually are truly Christians, whether we're truly saved, whether we've truly been forgiven in the first place. Now, The point of Jesus' teaching here isn't some sort of sequence. If you forgive him, then God forgives you. You know, you've got to get the order right. The point is an issue of the attitude of the heart, the posture of the heart. You see, if we are going to be people, if we are people who, who are true believers, that is, we have seen our own sinfulness and been broken over our own sinfulness and then trusted Christ's gift of forgiveness that he gave us on the cross, that grace has so, so shaped us that we will not be people of necessity. We will not be people who harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. I'm not saying there won't be a little period of time where you struggle with that, but if you harbor and hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, an, a repentant forgiven heart does not do that a heart that has been forgiven by Christ is a forgiving heart a gracious heart Uh, I thought of it this way um, as an American I don't understand curling at all and if I went down to the local curling club and I got my little polo shirt and my shoes with whatever kind of spikes they have and I have my little slippers for the ice do they not have spikes okay there you go see I could uh, I could try and act and look like I belong there I have to look at this but I don't even know what a T line a hog line and a back line is I, I, I just don't belong there because it's not it's not shaped in my heart. It's not shaped in my mind. And so you could say, you could say something like, if you don't know what a T-line, a hog line, and a back line is, you're not part of the curling club. And it would be true, but it, it, it's getting at something deeper, right? It's not like, okay, if I just go memorize those definitions that I'm allowed into the, the, the curling club. It's saying, is this something that you really are, are committed to? It's who you are. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look, where is your heart as you come to the Lord in prayer? Do you understand what it means to be an adopted child of God when you are a rebel sinner? You come to your father with a heart that 
is glorying in the forgiveness even as you ask for it, then your heart will be forgiving to others. Grudges and bitterness destroy us, and they are poison to our faith. And we can, because we care about what others think, say, oh yes, I've forgiven them. But that doesn't mean that I'll give them an embrace. Oh, oh yes, they're forgiven. It doesn't mean I have to speak to them. God knows our hearts. We're harboring bitterness and unforgiveness. Jesus is saying your prayers are hindered. And if it persists, you have reason to question whether you will be forgiven on the last day. It's not how I'd word it, but it's how Jesus has worded it. And I trust him over me. The third example that Jesus comes to is fasting. And, uh, you know, each example, giving to the poor, prayer, fasting, are, are things we're supposed to do. It's assumed that we're going to do them. You see, Jesus' teaching, sometimes we think of Christianity, it's like opposed to righteous deeds. Like it's almost bad to be righteous because, hey, then you're saying I need to earn my salvation or, you know. No, actually, the Bible is, is for being righteous. It's a good thing to be righteous. The problem becomes... Broadly speaking, the Bible, when we're, uh, our, our effort to be righteous is an attempt to earn our standing with God. We can't earn our standing with God. That's all of grace. And the problem here, of course, that Jesus is focusing in on is when our efforts to be righteous are efforts that are ultimately to try and please man and not glorify God or praise him, please him. So God is calling us to these things. He is calling us to give to the needy. He's calling us to prayer. And it is right to fast. I don't know how much teaching has been done here on fasting. But fasting, biblically speaking, is uh, when we abstain from food, sometimes something else, but biblically from food, for a spiritual purpose. Maybe it be for prayer or repentance or seeking the Lord's will in a decision, but abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. And it's something we're to do. But when we do it, we're not to do it in such a way that everyone says, wow, he's really pious. He's one of those weird Christians who fasts. He must be on that new level. I'll say, in my year and a half here, it's something our church does well. I, I haven't noticed anybody making a big deal of their fasting. Or I haven't had that vibe from anybody that, oh, I'm so much more righteous than everyone because I fast. Now, it could be that we don't fast, and that's why. But if that's the case, then beware. Because as you start to obey this command, especially if it's not kind of the thing that you think everyone else is doing, that sense of, boy, I'm pretty righteous. I want other people to see what a righteous guy I am can start to creep in. So we need to beware. Beware. Can't let it be a show of how pious we are. 
as we start doing it. So those are the three examples. And again, just the mastery of Jesus teaching and giving these three examples. And then in verses 19 through 24, coming back around and hammering home his main point, which again gets down to these two different motives. And he does it with, with kind of three quick examples. Or not examples, but kind of illustrations. You know, there's this idea of laying up treasures in heaven. There's this idea as the lamp of the body. And there's this idea of serving two masters. They're all hitting the same point. You could, you could summarize what's being said in each of those with three questions. What do I treasure? Verses 19 through 21. What do I fix my eyes on? Verses 22 through 23. Whom do I serve? Verse 24. All this is an issue of what is my motive? Am I a man pleaser or am I a God pleaser? Am I seeking earthly reward or am I seeking eternal reward? I love how verses 19 through 21 talk about this. What do I treasure? Moth and rust destroy it. Whether it's the fleeting praise of man and the fickle crowds. One day they love you, the next day they hate you. Or whether it's actual material things that we're storing up on earth. What are we going for? Are we trying to get the rewards of this earth? Let me give a couple questions that get at the heart of what do I treasure? When my mind wanders... Where does it wander? What do I tend to think about? How do I spend my discretionary time? What things in life give me the greatest joy? What are the things that get my stomach really tied up in a knot? If you ask, if you ask those four questions, you're going to find out what you really treasure. You're going to find out really where your heart is. And is the reward and what you care about most the eternal or is it the stuff of this earth? And then there's that awkward, uh, at least awkward for us, example of the, the eye is the lamp of the body in verses 23, 22 and 23. Eye is a lamp of a body, light, good, bad, darkness, light in me. What's going on? And I think it's an example that would have made more sense to the ancient mind, but the idea is just kind of, this is, this is where the light comes in for inside. And so whatever light is coming in here is shaping who I am. It's shaping what I'm about. And so if I have my eyes fixed on good light, good things, well, it shapes my whole inner, you know, my, my soul. It shapes my will in a good way. And if it's, if it's darkness, well, that's, there's going to be a deep darkness inside of you. So the issue is, what, what do you, the, the imagery that we would use, what do you fix your eyes on? What is it that we make our goal? What are we pursuing with all? Where are our eyes fixed? Again, a few questions to help us ascertain that. If I had to boil down my life to one priority... What would it be? What am I about? Or, or in a very literal sense of fixing my eyes, what is it that I read? What is it that I watch? What is it that I listen to? 
what's it say about where my eyes are fixed? If an outsider, someone who didn't know me, came and examined my life, what would they say my life is about? What am I trying to pursue in life based on how I'm living my life? What do I fix my eyes upon? And then verse 24 can't serve God and money, or as the old translation used to say, God and mammon. No one knows what mammon means anymore, so they have to put money there, but, but money is not really the white, right word either, because the word mammon can refer to all of your material possessions, not just money. Anything that's the stuff this earth that's yours. That's, you can't serve that and God. Jesus likes to use this strong, dichotomizing language. You love one or hate the other, you're not going to serve both. Whom do I serve? Again, a few diagnostic questions on this. Who do I serve with the things God has given me, like my money, my time, my abilities, my energy? How do I use that stuff? I serve it to acquire more, to increase my mammon? Or do I do it, use those things in service of the Lord? The money that I have, when I give it to things of the Lord, do I do it begrudgingly? Or do I do it with joy? Or conversely, the money I have, when I use it for mammon, when I use it to acquire more for myself, do I do that with joy? Am I excited about that? Or I do that kind of like, hey, there's a necessity here. I need to provide for this. Who do I serve? See, all this gets down to our hearts, doesn't it? Do I care about the eternal? Is that the reward I'm seeking? Or do I just want the fleeting reward of the praise of man? Who do I serve? What's in my heart? And Jesus, who's called together his disciples up onto the mountain, away from the crowds, these new disciples, and he's teaching them what they need to be about, he says, beware. Because for we who have chosen to follow Christ, it is a temptation that is unique to us. I shouldn't say unique to us, but it's something that we will particularly deal with. The temptation to do our righteous deeds, to be seen by man, and to allow our earthly reward to be what satisfies us. I even think of how this grips my own heart, how, how, how much I have to wrestle with it. It was early on in my time here. I was here on Sunday morning and I was in prayer, um, but preparing for the sermon. And even the posture of prayer was, it was just helping me concentrate. But somebody saw me and I found out that they had seen me and there was a little bit of like, oh, they think I'm spiritual. This is good. You know, there's that like, I want to please you guys. I want you guys to think I'm a spiritual giant in my heart. 
I'm not, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a guy who cries real easily. Some pastors are. Pastor starts crying. Everybody now they love him and they think he's great and whatever he has to say is important now because he's crying. I, I'm not, I'm not like that. So sometimes when I do get a little teary, there's a part of me that's like, okay, okay, everyone look, see, see. It's in my heart. The wrong thing is in my heart. I think probably that's true for all of us. I don't think you can do any righteous thing without some mixed motives in your heart. What Jesus is saying here is not that that we can be these kind of pure, you know, pure motive people that, that never have anything but the glory of God in mind in everything we do. But he's asking the questions, what's the core of my heart? What's my deepest desire in this? So so I don't want you to hear this and be crippled from doing anything righteous until you've got your heart just in the right place. Okay, I'm not going to do that good thing because, you know what, there's a little bit of selfish. Okay, I'll just stop praying for my sermons because sometimes somebody might see me and I might feel the same way again. No. Repent of the wrong motives in your heart and keep doing the right thing. And check your heart to see what's at your core, what's at the deepest parts. But beware of that dangerous element in your heart to be a man pleaser. Be consciously resisting it. Be taking active steps to fight against that. Here's the thing, though. I want to end with this. I can control at a certain level what I do. If I am supposed to do X, Y, or Z, I will do, I can, if I want to really bad, do X, Y, and Z. Whatever the righteous thing is. Okay, I'm going to go to church. I can control that. I'm supposed to pray this many times a day. I can control that. But the problem with this message from Jesus, the diagnostic question, you know, what kind of rash is this? Is that it gets down to my heart and my desires, my motives, which are much more difficult for me to control. I mean, that, that's the big thing in our culture, right? Hey, whatever you desire, you just got to do because that's who you are. Don't change your deepest desires. You can't. I can't change. And it's true for all of us. We can't reach in to our desires and, and our will and change them. And that's why religions that allow us to do all the outward stuff, whether they're Christian religions, and much of Christianity is like this, or non-Christian religions, but religions that allow us to do all sorts of outward stuff and feel good about ourselves and receive the praise of man and receive, you know, lofty positions in the church or good standing in the community or the religious community. We love that stuff. We eat it up because we can be righteous and not have dealt with the motives in our heart. the gospel of Jesus Christ 
is that through his death and resurrection, he acquired the, the right, he acquired the power over death and over sin that reigns within us. And so he has the right to be able, if we repent and trust in him, to reach in and actually change our desires, to change our motives, to change us at our core. Our nature is transformed. And that, that is what will allow us to be what Jesus is calling his disciples to be here. And Jesus changes my heart because of my faith in Christ. I'm not just trying to be good because that's what I'm supposed to do as a kid who grew up in the church. I actually love Jesus. And I see the goodness of his ways and I desire to please him. And I see the eternal and that's where my hope is. Because I want to store up those treasures. Now, of course, that's a growing thing. It's something you cultivate. You feed the spirit. You feed the flesh. There's all that going on. But that's what we need. It's gospel transformation in our hearts. So if you heard this today and you're like, yeah, that's good. That sounds good, but it's not in my heart. Come to Jesus. Repent. And ask him for that new heart that he gives you. And that new nature. And then you'll see your desires change. And all of a sudden, you'll be like, yeah, there's still elements that I want to be a man pleaser. But what's at the core really is I want to please God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be people who beware as we follow you, that we would not be like the hypocrites who put on a show for others who live for the applause, but that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, that we'd store up treasures in heaven, that we would seek to please our Father as your children, knowing that you reward us when we do it. In Christ's name, amen.